Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. Today, we have three illustrious panelists with us. Uh, we have Lori Roper, the Cook County uh, Supervisor Attorney Problem-Solving Courts, and we have Brian Scanlon, the Cook County Assistant Attorney Public Defender Office, and we have Dr. Benjamin Bowman, the U.S. Army veteran and staff physician at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. So we have a, a really esteemed panel here. Today, our, uh, we're going to be talking about some things, and this is about mentoring veterans in Veterans Treatment Court and service members LGBTQ uh, plus community, making sure that we uh, honor all of our veterans uh, despite uh, their background. Uh, and so I am really looking at uh, some three uh, incredible advocates who have been doing some great work for veterans uh, throughout this uh, state. And actually, it has a national impact because people need to learn from them. So um, I want to uh, start off, uh, I guess I'll start off with uh, uh, Lori O'Brien, uh, if you want to start. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Good yeah. to see you again, uh, Dr. Arnold. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, I'm Brian Scanlon. I'm one of the public defenders, uh, both working at 26th Street and with our veterans. Mm -hmm. And um, what I'd like to do is introduce Dr. Bowman in that um, through uh, our last guest, Mr. Dr. Uh, Odom, he introduced us and couldn't say enough good things about uh, Dr. Bowman. <laughs> what a wonderful character he is. And I'd just like to say we're being introduced to a man of great diversity, great education, and somebody who, who who's, as he's going to tell you, has dedicated his life to helping others. Um, I'd just like Lori to have a word, and then if Dr. Bowman can tell us about yourself, how you got into the military, and where it's taken you. Well, it, um, I couldn't put uh, his bio down. It seemed as if I was reading an, uh, a, a novel about espionage or something. I mean, you got the <laughs> diplomat thing. You got, you got the crypto-linguist situation going on. I just can't wait to hear from Dr. Bowman. I mean, this, he has to be one of the most exciting guests we've had on this show. Oh, fantastic. Whoa, Dr. Bowman. I don't Bowman. know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Dr. Dr. Bowman, Bowman oh, go ahead. brought you into the military? <laughs> so um, I have a little bit of background from just family members. Uh, I have a grandfather and a great-grandfather that were, were both veterans. Um, in high school, I had, had never really considered it an option, wanted to go straight through to college. But, um, you know, just with the circumstances growing up in, a, like, a smaller mountain town in Colorado, and my parents were really – um, weren't able to save as much for college as I think they had hoped to and, you know, hard times and both working blue collar jobs. My dad was a custodian and my mom was a secretary. So, um, you know, I don't think they were able to save enough for school. And so, um, it became clear to me, you know, as I finished high school that it was going to be the best op um, you know, opportunity for me. Um, and I think my parents understood very well that the military has always is and has always been a social elevator, um, for low income Americans. And so I did, they, um, you know, they were sort of putting that seed, planting that seed in my mind, and so I took advantage of the that opportunity really early. 
So, um, yeah, that's how that's how it happened. I had a couple of uh, mentors um, that my mom knew who were uh, you know military members, and I think they you know helped convince me that it was going to be a, a way to you know put my future first. Mm-hmm. Is that how you came into your role or your interest in mentoring people? I mean, kind of maybe tell us about what was um, the status of LGBTQ uh, individuals when you went into the uh, military, and and how did that affect you? Yeah, it, it was definitely something that was um, very foremost on my mind, you know, as an 18-year-old, because the world was very different, um, you know, 20 years ago when I joined before September 11th and before, um, you know, it was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so um, it was something on my mind that, you know, joining the military, putting my future first, I'd be putting sort of, you know, my, you know, my background um, in the background um, and sort of, you know, my personal desires for a family, um, you know, sort of second to my career. Um, and so I think definitely now, you know, where I am, you know, having, you know, been able to take advantage of all the opportunities that the military has provided me and been able to have, you know, be open about my, you know, my background and, 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 have, and have a family, you know, that I would like to. Um, I think it's important to, you know, since things have changed so much, make sure that, um, you know, kids that are growing up now and making those decisions to, to go into the military know that, um, that obviously the situation is different now and be able to explain that to them and then, um, you know, additionally, you know, say that even if you, you fear that the, you'll have tough situations that you'll, you'll get through it. And so, yeah, it, it definitely played a role in my, my desire to want to mentor, you know, up to this point. So um, as far as how it was when I started, as I mentioned, it was two decades ago. So it was a time of don't ask, don't tell. And so it wasn't, uh, I remember uh, being, you know, we mentioned like uh, some of my training as a crypto linguist, I was learning Mandarin Chinese in um, central California for, for two years at a language school called the Defense Language Institute. And I remember, uh, I have a distinct memory of a day um, when they um, kicked out about eight Arabic linguists um, out of the training courses. And these were two-year training courses, so it was a big sort of, um, I think, hit to the, to the U.S. Army's at the time. Um, there were other services training there, but to their, you know, their future ability to collect intelligence because they were getting rid of people who had been studying for almost two years, almost ready to graduate. Um, and this was just after September 11th when they would have needed those people. Um, and I, there was, you know, some sort of situation where I think it was discovered that there were nine service members, you know, um, who were LGBT, you know, Q, and um, they were all processed for um, discharge, dishonorable discharge from the military. Mm. Um, and at that time, I thought to myself, well, that can't be me for a variety of reasons. One, I've got my future ahead of me. Um, and and two, you know, I want to be able to, con- you know, serve my country. So um, it was unfortunate at that time, you know, witnessing that not only for those, like, nine people who I knew, um, but also just sort of, you know, looking at where my personal life would be able to go at that time. So things have changed quite a bit. Sorry, that was a, a bit of a long-winded answer. No, but I was thinking about something that came to mind, that in the military, right, you have to rely on your fellow people, and mental health issues are very, very important to Lori and I, both in veterans and with regular court. Do you think that the being closeted and not having somebody you can relate to, like a mentor, would have only hurt the military or, or um, and mentoring also shows non LGBTQ people, correct? That it's okay. You don't know, you know, you, we're here to work together best possible. Absolutely. I always felt, and I know that my, um, you know, uh, my fellow soldiers who were also in the closet at the time felt that there was a distance um, that I would say definitely hindered our ability to work as a team, not being able to be open in the way um, I think we're able to be open now. Um, I think 
you know, there, there was a lot of fear back then that, um, you know, having open, um, you know, gay and lesbian um, members of the military would, you know, change the way that teams function. And I think um, it it did it did change the way teams function in that they functioned worse. I think, you know, being able to be close with the people who are, you know, helping, you know, protect your life and help accomplish our, our country's goals is important. And I think now that um, team members are able to be closer to each other and more open, um, now that the policies have changed, I think has, has made for stronger teams. Okay. Yeah, Any think, questions? Yeah one, one thing that, yeah, one thing that really struck me about what you said is, you know, how can you dishonorably discharge someone? You know, it, how, how is that a dishonor to um, have, you know, to be gay or lesbian or h- however, transgender? How is that a dishonor? Many of those people built this country. Actually, and I, I, it just it's astounding to me that they could even put that designator on people. Um, th- th- that's one thing. You know, one thing is tell me go away, but don't tell me I'm a dishonor. <laughs> You know, uh, that that's really uh, very, very sickening. Um, and that needs to be, you know, it needs to be changed uh, dramatically. I know, you know we're in changing times, but uh, we still have a lot, long way to go. And uh, people really need to, to, to start thinking about what they're saying when they, um, you know, when they are discriminated against people um, for any reason. But, you know, this is just a- a- absolutely terrible. <laughs> I, I just... Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, you know, it almost makes you, it makes you feel like crying because you feel that this is a threat to our country. It's a threat to what our constitution means and what the found foundations of what we're fighting for. When I was over in Iraq in combat zones, uh, I, you know, I wasn't fighting for a black person or a white person or a gay person. I was fighting for everybody. <laughs> I was fighting for Americans who were here. And, I, I, you know, so I, I just, when people put their lives on the line, that's who I, I fight, fought for. So if anyone wants to do something like that, you know, it shouldn't be the military making domestic enemies out of our own people. Wonderful. Uh-huh. And um, go ahead, Lori. Well, I was just thinking that uh, regarding the uh people that are in our programs at the Veterans Treatment Court, um, how how could you, how do you see yourself perhaps helping an individual who may be in our program who may have turned to substance abuse or something like that because they could not be their authentic selves, that they just could not live their lives, and, and that caused them a lot of heartache and hardship. And so now you know, facing that that may be their, that may be the reason, you know, that they've never been able to live their full lives. How would you go about helping a person like that? That's actually a a really great question. And I think uh, it's usually like about a four-step process. And I think we've already talked a little bit about the first step, which is stigma. And that's destigmatizing, you know, substance use disorders. A lot of um, physicians and clinicians still will say, you know, substance um, abuse or, you know, tobacco abuse. And we don't use that terminology anymore. It's out of date. I try try to correct people. They're use disorders. And so I think just recognizing that there are always, as you've mentioned, um, reasons why people turn to substances. Um, and helping the, um, the people who are using those substances realize, hey, this, there's there's a stigma surrounding it, and we're going to get you help. And then, the, like I said, the next that's the first step is destigmatizing it, and you know, taking it and making it 
making people realize that it's a pathology, it's an illness, just like when you get pneumonia, that's not your fault. Um, and if you have, you know, an alcohol use disorder, that's not your fault. There are, there are some, there are a lot of risk factors for getting pneumonia and cancer, and there are risk factors for, um, for substance, um, misuses. And so the second, I think this, the second level to get to is, um, getting those people access to the treatments that they need, which in a lot of places, um, there's still stigma surrounding those. And this, if this is, um, needle exchanges to get safe, um, you know, safe access to, as they transition from injection drug use to, 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 um, to a better place. Or if that's even um, if they have like an opioid use addiction, transitioning them to a different type of opioids that, um, you know, will stimulate their receptors in a way that helps them um, come off of their, um, you know, their opioid use. And then and then and then hopefully, you know, with the goal of inevitably, you know, um, discontinuing that use. So I think that's the second step is getting them access to treatment. We do that as much as we can in the emergency department. And we're lucky to have a city where um, there are a lot of good clinics that help um, people transition, especially with opioids. Um and then I think uh, the third step, too, is helping get social resources because, you know, there's, there's the medical and chemical treatments for, um, for substance use disorders, but there's also the, the, um, the psychosocial treatment that's surrounding that, and so connecting people to those resources. We don't do that as much um, in the emergency room, but um, getting people connected with people who have been through the process before, with groups, with therapy, and then sometimes just reconnected with the important people in their lives, their own social support networks, whether that's their old battle buddies, um, whether it's, um, you know, family members or close friends that they lost touch with during that time when they were, um, you know, struggling with substance use. Um, that's, that's usually the third step. And I think the fourth step, which, which a lot of people forget about, is giving back. I think the way you can sustain um, your, you know, the being away from the substances that you had to turn to because of, you know, discrimination of any sorts or, you know, economic hardship. Um, sometimes turning around and being able, or, or even, you know, being um, a victim of violence and living in a community that suffers a lot of violence, finding a way to give back is often a way to sustain the growth and the distance you have from, you know, the substance use or the violence. Um, and whether that's being a mentor yourself or helping others through the, you know, those four steps that I, I just mentioned, I think that that's really key to sustaining your, um, I guess, your abstinence. Wonderful, wonderful. Speaking of mentorship, when I kind of think of, um, like, say, recruiters in the military, do you ever have outreach to the recruiters, say, look, not that you're specifically recruiting LGBTQ people, but how to how to identify if it comes up and how to deal with it? You know, I haven't personally since being um, since being out of the military um, originally. So I'm, I'm a, a captain again in the reserves as a emergency medicine physician. But when I was a Chinese crypto linguist before, um, it was it was still at the time of don't ask, don't tell. So there wasn't a lot of advocacy and, and program work there. Um, I did, you know, at that time I would do some recruiting work, and I would, you know, personally, you know, do my best to, you know, when I would encounter, um, you know, potential recruits who who I, you know, had. I had the concern that they might have the concern that they wouldn't be welcome in the military. I always made it very clear that, you know, it was a welcoming place, even though I think the policies um, at the time spoke otherwise. Um, I think that's a, like a really a big place for improvement, though, is making sure that the, the recruiting campaigns um, demonstrate sort of the openness that the policies have, you know, have, have gradually come to. And if I, I don't mean to hog it up, but when I'm thinking about Veterans Treatment Court, and I see that we do have LGBTQ people in our Veterans Treatment Court. And um, on the, the personal level, everyone is totally fine with it. Is the problem in the military kind of higher up or like policy issues? Because from, I would say, Lori's in my experience, 
people are pretty free in the recovery process and um, they just look to each other like, can you help me? Not like, who are you or what are you? Is, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it totally does. And I would actually say that even, I would say the, you know, the leadership in the, in the military, you know, the Joint Chiefs, Secretary of Defense have always been sort of at the forefront of, of you know, social progress. You know, the environment, the um, desegregation started in the military much before it started in the United States uh, at large. Um, environmental policies, you, you know, using renewable energies has started there much in advance. I mean, the, the military is often, you know, contrary to what many people believe, is often in, in at the forefront of these um, these sorts of innovations. And I think, honestly, sometimes um, you mentioned, is it, is it the higher-ups that are the problem? I would say oh, sometimes it would, I would say it's the leadership the civilian leadership of the country and, um, and you know, and sort of the, the electorate that it's beholden to sometimes that holds the military up from being as progressive as I think it would um, inherently be on its own sometimes. A lot of people, you know, the military also has socialized medicine, if you think about TRICARE. And there are, there are a lot of ways that the military is, is progressive that um, many Americans don't believe in and is ready to be more progressive, if, you know, I think, if it was left to its own devices. Hmm. Excellent. And Dr. Arnold, do you find that the VA is a very welcoming place for both people with problems or people who, who just need help in general? Yeah, I, I think that there is, uh, there's still a need for, um, you, you know, a better connectivity uh, because, I, you know, uh, when I – actually, for an example, when, I, when I've gone for an examination, I'm a physician myself, so I know what people should be asking me. If I say I have back pain or there's a certain uh, series of steps should be taken, exams, and certain things that you should absolutely do, it's just base, you know, basic, uh, basic medicine. And, uh, you know, I've got, had the experience uh, being African-American. They don't know who I am. They just see this veteran. So, uh, you know, I was sitting in the office and I had, you know, examiners just having their back to me and they're on the computer. And they're typing things in, and I'll say, "Well, you know, I have back pain, but well, 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 you know, how's your how's your neck doing? How's your shoulder doing? You know, <laughs> and if, well, we'll have back pain. Never, never take off my uh, clothing. Never get on a table. Get never get examined uh, the way you should for a neuro exam. And you should be looking at certain things if you're talking about a back problem. And it's five minutes, and it's okay. Uh, go to the next clinic, and may, maybe we'll give you a, an appointment for some physical therapy. And it takes four or five months to get physical therapy. So, <laughs> you know, so those kinds of things uh, happen all the time. And and I think that uh, you know people who are in that situation uh, are at a much greater disadvantage than I am because I know what's going on, but they don't know what's going on, and. You know, so they don't know to say something or to speak up. And uh, actually, I went to one exam and told the person, you know, let them know that I was a physician. And they just, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe maybe we should get something else going uh, and do something else for you. And I was on the way out the door, and I said, no, forget it. I said, I'll t- take it out with the next doc. <laughs> and, you know, so those things happen. And uh, actually, I was talking to uh, Stephen um, Seidman, you know, uh, who is an attorney. And he was saying that uh, he was actually going to try to push for, you know, uh, getting statistics on how uh, people are treated. And it was, uh, it was, you know, for people of color, so, you know, African-Americans and Asians and that kind of thing in the military. But I think the LGBTQ community also, we should be looking at the statistics to see how people are treated in the healthcare system. I think we need to have a baseline of that data, and we need to have our legislators push for it.
We need to have the congressional members say, let's take a look at this data and see what has been happening, because that uh, really has implications for whether people actually have the ability to even try to recover, you know, from substance abuse or from any other kind of, uh, you know, in, uh, issue, uh, whether it's traumatic brain injury or PTSD. If you're, if you're looked at as being this aggressive, angry person all the time, then, you know, the PTSD diagnosis gets buried, and it's like, well, that's just the way the person is, right? <laughs> and so we really need to really, really reevaluate how we're looking at people. Yeah. Excellent. Any ideas, Lori, on, uh, on, on the Veterans Treatment Court? Well, I was just thinking that if, uh, you know, since we do have some of uh, our clients who are in that community, I mean, how would they reach, you know, uh, is there a way for them to reach out? Do you know any other, any support groups, Dr. Bowman, that they may be able to reach out to that are military uh, and LGBTQ-related? Perhaps uh, uh, some of our uh, clients can reach out and get more support. That's actually a very great idea, but unfortunately, I don't know of any um, you know military LGBTQ groups in Chicago. So I think that's actually um, now that you're saying it's something that I I think I could probably start um, here in the city because it's it sounds like there's a big need for that, and I know there's a lot of um, there are a lot of you know military support groups out there, um, but none specifically to um, you know to the LGBTQ community. So. Wow! Oh yeah. <laughs> It was born yeah. here. <laughs> well, that, that's great. I, I think that's fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just thinking about your history coming from Colorado and being a Chinese cryptologist. That's uh, just amazing. <laughs> just that part of it. <laughs> yeah, it is very amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and is there any uh, specific mentoring you're doing now or that we could, like, yeah. just hear about? Yes, yeah, so I've been uh, really lucky, not specifically with, um, you know, veterans or, or um, um, you know, the LGBTQ, but it luckily, um, so I live on the south side of Chicago, not too far from University of Chicago's hospital. So I've been really lucky, lucky to do um, a little bit of work in schools with, um, in a few ways. Um, one was um, teaching nutrition to uh, middle schoolers, which I think is, is so important. A lot of health starts, you know, really early in life, and if you can, you know, prevent you know, like we, we often we see people, especially in the emergency room and hospitals and medicine at the VA, at, you know, near the end of these courses of illness where maybe you have a diabetic foot ulcer or diabetic nephropathy or some sort of, you know, eye problem related. But if you if you catch someone who at a stage in their life can be taught, you know, about healthy eating and, you know, appropriate, you know, um, eating of sugar or, or what nutrients are and, and those sorts of things. So I've 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 always I was really passionate um, about getting involved there, and it was something that brought me so much joy to see these kids not just, you know, um, integrating what they were learned, but taking it home and say, hey, I, I told my sister not to eat this and this, um, and, you know, or the other night when we had dinner, you know, I suggested that we have this, and we ate it, and everybody loved it, so, you know, that that's something I've taken um, a lot of joy in. Also, there's, um, at the University of Chicago, we have, um, since I'm an EM physician, there's an EM physician, a medical student group um, that's a very diverse group that has both African-American students, Asian students, and LGBTQ students um, who are interested in emergency medicine. And so we'll bring them into the emergency department, and they can shadow us when 
patients with back pain come in and they can, you know, sort of see how we're evaluating them and giving them, you know, the absolutely highest, you know, standard of care that we can. Um, and so that's another way. And I think, you know, those, those students are already on their way to be, you know, leaders to go out and, you know, to their communities. But um, it's, a, it's a way that I can I find to give back, you know, as they're like, you know, progressing through their medical training um, to help expose them to my, my uh, domain of medicine. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, cause I'm a vegan myself, but, um, you know, when people are worried about what the composition of the, of the uh, vaccine for COVID is, and I always pick up a bag of uh, Cheetos and say, look what's on this label. <laughs> you know, so we, really? we always put junk in our bodies. But give us, a, you know, uh, can you, is there a telephone number, a place that we can go to for people to, uh, you know, to get involved with the programs you're uh, doing now? You know, um, the Pritzker School of Medicine at University of Chicago, I don't actually have a number for uh, the school itself, okay. um, but yet the, the number of the school is online, and the program is called uh, Mission Nutrition. Mission. So it was, since I have the military background, we kind of gave it a little bit, little bit of a military bent. But, yeah, um, if they wanted to be involved in that, it's called Mission Nutrition. Okay, fantastic. Uh, but we're running out of time, but I just wanted to really thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, so... Uh, you know, our roundtable partners uh, with uh, the court with uh, Judge Hooks, uh, Attorney Lori Roper, and Attorney Brian Scanlon. Uh, and actually, I'm doing a lot of things over at the USC right now with the Trauma Care Violence Prevention Program. So I'm going to have to reach out to you, uh, Dr. Bowman. Uh, very impressed with your background. Thank you for your service. And uh, nation is much better because you were. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.